Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. In 1956, a woman threw acid on the Mona Lisa and harmed a part of that picture. And so since that time, the Mona Lisa has always been framed in a bulletproof display case. So if you were to travel to the Louvre and you wanted to see the Mona Lisa, there would actually be not one but two things necessary. One is you'd have to find the painting itself hanging on the wall. But two is that that display case would have to be clear enough for you to see through the glass and behold Leonardo da Vinci's masterpiece, the Mona Lisa. So there has to be this marvel, this beauty on the inside, but there also has to be enough clarity on the outside for that beauty to get through to you. You who are in Christ Jesus are quite a lot like the Mona Lisa as we've just described it. You've been created, whether you know Christ or not, you've been created to demonstrate His glory to the world because you bear His image. So you are meant to show forth the glories of your Creator. And if you're in Christ, you are being remade, repurposed, if you will, restored so that you reflect God's image even more clearly. But for God's glory to be seen in your life, there has to be first the inner change that the Holy Spirit works in us, those things like love and joy and peace that we've talked about in Galatians. That has to really be going on in your heart. But secondly, that has to then come through with some degree of transparency from what is within you to what is outside of you. You are made not only to be inwardly restored, but you were made so that people around you could look at you and not just see the surface, but gaze beyond the display case into who you really are. Anyone can pretend to be religious. Anyone can pretend to love others for a time. But God has designed you, His saints, to truly love others and then to live transparently enough that what is within you is seen outside of you. And that you know, is a terrifying thing because that inner renewal isn't complete yet. And so when you are transparent and others see what's really inside of you, they will not just see the good, but they'll also see the blemishes. They'll see the damage that the acid has done. And that's why for many of us, the temptation is to fog up the display case a little bit to try to be somewhat less transparent because we don't want people to see the imperfections. We've not yet reached the acme of holiness that we're pursuing. So we smudge the case. You might think, well, that's unusual. Although last year, even the Mona Lisa's case was smudged with cake by a protester. And in a sense, that's what we do. We smudge the cake across the display case so that others don't see those imperfections that are within us. They, 
don't see how you lost your temper with your children on Tuesday. They don't see those impure thoughts on Thursday. But you know what else they won't see if you fog up the display case? They won't see the genuine work that God has been doing in you either. When what you are inwardly is seen and enacted clearly outwardly, we call that integrity. It's really an integrating of your inner person and your outer person. So that, like Paul said, we don't want anyone to see in us more than is actually there. Yes, we do. But we shouldn't. And that's Paul's point. So that when others see you, they see you as you actually are. We call that integrity. But if you obscure things on the outside so much that others can't see what's really going on in your heart, we call that the opposite, hypocrisy. Integrity is when our display case is fairly clear. Hypocrisy is when we've intentionally made it not clear. And clearing up the display case, growing in integrity, becoming just one person and not two people, that is a wildly important part of Christian growth. That's a lot of what God is doing in all of our lives. I discuss integrity and hypocrisy today because that's the subject of our text. Paul is going here toward the end of Galatians to direct us one more time to the bad leaders who had showed up in the Galatian church, the Judaizers. And over against them stands Paul himself, a good leader. And what separates them, among other things, is that Paul, as all good leaders, was a man of integrity. Who you saw him to be was who he was. Whereas the bad leaders, the Judaizers, as all bad leaders, they fogged up the display case. Who they were inwardly was not who they presented themselves to be. Let's see this in Galatians chapter 6, and we're beginning in verse 11. See with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised. And only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law. But they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Most of this passage is about the bad leaders who had come to Galatia, the Judaizers. Paul went there first, planted these churches as a good leader, proclaimed a pure gospel. The Judaizers followed, claiming to have the best interests of the Galatian Christians in mind, but telling them that if they really wanted to go to heaven, if they really wanted to be God's people, what Paul said and his gospel are not enough. Not only must you believe in Christ, but you must do certain Jewish works. Namely, you need to be circumcised. You need to basically, as a non-Jew, become a Jew, and then you can become a Christian. Paul has been arguing against that whole false gospel this whole time, a gospel of salvation by works rather than faith alone. And as he gets to the very end of his letter to the Galatians, it makes sense that he would turn 
and give one last blast against the Judaizers because some five verses from now, he's going to be done with this letter. They, on their part, will be done reading this letter and they will put it down and they will have to make a choice. They will choose either Paul and his gospel, a salvation by faith alone, or they will choose the Judaizers and their perversion of the gospel and try to get right with God by something they do. It's the same choice that faces all of you and every person upon this planet. It was the choice that would face them. And so Paul is concluding his letter as he comes near the end of it with this final appeal. That's why even this text begins with, see, look, as he comes to the end. Paul is pleading earnestly as if life and death were in the balance, for they are. And every Galatian who at first read this letter now lives either in paradise or in torment forever, based on how they responded. That's why Paul is pleading. And through Paul today, God is pleading with you. And he wants you to see that in this world, there's not only a true gospel and false gospels, but there are also true leaders in the church who proclaim and preserve for you a true gospel, like Paul. And there are also many, many false leaders in the church, bad leaders in the church, who claim to have your interests in mind and claim to proclaim the truth, and yet they've perverted the gospel, they're hiding their real intentions, there's something else they want out of it than your good and God's glory. So that's what we're going to consider today, those two side by side, good leaders and their motives seen in Paul with his transparency and earnestness, and then over against them the bulk of our text, bad leaders like the Judaizers and their false motives, their obscuring of what's really in their heart. So may God use this for us to protect us from bad leaders and also to keep us securely under good leaders. So let's look first then at good leaders. This is just brief in the text, one verse even, and we have to infer some things here, but let's look at it. This is Paul in verse 11. See with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. That's one of the more surprising parts of this whole letter. And even from when I was young, that is a part of Scripture that always stood out to me. I never really had a sense of why he said that, but it always stood out to me that he was writing with large letters there. So why? <laughs> why does he write with large letters? And even why does he draw attention to the fact that he writes with large letters? And that second question is a lot easier to answer. Why would he point out in his letter that he's writing with large letters? Couldn't his recipients just see these are large letters? The answer to that is actually no, because the letters Paul wrote were to whole churches, and it was not each individual Christian in the church who would come and look at the letter, but rather, most likely, one person would take the letter from Paul, stand up, and read it to everyone else. So if Paul didn't point out the fact that he was writing with large letters, the Galatians probably wouldn't know except the one reading the letter. But by the providence of God, the same holds true for us. We would not know since we have lost the original, it's disintegrated with time, but we have thousands of copies. We wouldn't know if Paul had written with large letters 
unless he told us he wrote with large letters. So this is clearly something the Holy Spirit of God wants you to know, that Paul wrote with large letters. Now we have to ask the question, but why? Why write with large letters? The answer is, first of all, that he simply doesn't say. We are going to have to guess. And people have guessed. Throughout church history, commentators have guessed. There have been some who have said that Paul had an affliction in his eyes. Maybe that was his thorn in the flesh. And so he's writing with large letters because he can't see well. There have been others who have made the claim that Paul writing with large letters was because he was working with his hands with tents. He wasn't a skilled writer. So he's not very good at writing. Others have even said maybe he sustained a hand injury, perhaps from persecution, and therefore he's writing with large letters. I'm not convinced of any of those. You can be if you want to. It's fine. But I think in this case, with so little data available, it would be best to take the simplest approach. And the simplest explanation for why Paul would write with large letters is for emphasis. Why does anyone go on social media and hit the caps lock button? Among other reasons, it is for emphasis. I think that's exactly what is happening right here. Now, most all of Paul's letters, interestingly, he would have not written with his own hand. That's why he points that out here. He's written in large letters, with my own hand. So, well, it's your letter. Wouldn't they all be in your own hand? Actually, no. In the ancient world, in Paul's day, it was most common, very common, that you would not write your own letter. Instead, you would dictate the letter. You would speak it to an amenuensis, a sort of secretary, who would hear what you were saying and write it down. We know that this was Paul's practice from the end of his letter to the Romans. When you get to Romans 16, you read, I, Tertius, who write this letter, greet you in the Lord. And if you get there early in your walk with the Lord and say, I thought for sure this was Paul. <laughs> Why is Tertius writing this letter? Because he was the scribe. He was the secretary. He was the amenuensis to whom Paul was dictating the letter. It was not as common for people at that time to have good penmanship, to be writing and reading like we do today, and therefore it was more common to have someone who had a special skill in writing. And Paul would dictate but it was also common for Paul and for many others at that time when they got to the end of a letter that the person dictating would take the pen themselves and write the end of the letter. That was very common. In fact, we see this in 1 Corinthians. At the end of the letter, he says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Suggesting he didn't write the rest of it, but he's writing the greeting. And that would serve as a kind of signature. We might sign our letters today so that people know it's really from us. You can check how our signature is over against other copies of our signature. It's a way of authenticating that this is not a made-up letter from somebody else. And apparently, by letting someone else, dictating to someone else, they write your letter, and then Paul taking the pen at the end to write it with his own hand, that was a way of authenticating that this letter really was from Paul. You can see his writing here. And this was no small matter because if you remember when Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, it seems that they had received a letter claiming to be from Paul saying the resurrection already happened, you missed it. And everybody was panicked. 
So Paul writes 2 Thessalonians saying, that letter was not from me. Who knows who that was from? And at the end of 2 Thessalonians, he says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. So Paul, when he gets to this part in Galatians, probably the rest of Galatians was dictated. But when he gets to this part, this conclusion, this subscription at the end, he says, I'm writing with large letters in my own hand. Here I am. This is me writing so that they would know this was not a forgery. It's his own hand. But also, it's in large letters. Ancient Greek, like our language, had capitals and lowercase letters and a scribe, someone writing, especially at the time of Jesus in Greek, would have written in these lowercase cursive script. You can write quicker, very neat. If you're well-trained, you'll do a good job of that. Probably what Paul means in our text is he's not writing in that lowercase cursive script that the rest of the letter is in. He takes the pen and makes probably capital letters, capital letters. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. He's writing in all caps, which means this is very important. What I'm about to say, listen to this. Those who are listening to his letter falling asleep, wake up, listen to what I'm about to say. That's the point of it. Now, I don't want to read too much into this one verse. And we don't want to build too much upon it. It is just one verse that we're inferring things from. But I think the very least we can say from verse 11 is that Paul was earnest. He wasn't writing sleepily. It's not as if he didn't care what he was writing about. There was an earnestness about Paul. And this is true of all good leaders in the church. There is an earnestness. Yes, you could right? In big letters, you could yell and shout to cover up a lie or to push through a lie. That's true. But in Paul's case, the large letters and the look at those large letters, it reflects an earnestness in him. He wants them to see these things. They're so vitally important. It is because that display case on Paul's life was very clear. He was very transparent. He said, we don't peddle the word of God. We've renounced underhanded ways. Paul says, this is who I am. My heart is opened up to you, Galatians. I've written a fervent letter to you. And now listen to this. Don't go with the Judaizers. Because Paul was earnest. That's how he felt for them, a genuine love. Now, I have to admit, and I don't know about you, but I have to admit, it's okay if you do this, but I've gotten a bit of a bad taste in my mouth for all caps messages on social media, only because in recent years, that's often the point in which a commentator on social media has lost it. <laughs> and then what follows are all kinds of crazy things. Okay, so don't do that. But we do have to acknowledge there is something similar going here. There's a time for all caps, maybe not on social media, but there is right here for Paul. When his love is overflowing, he has a sense of urgency, and he writes to them with what we could call a controlled passion. There's still logic, there's still reason, but there's zeal. And this is how Paul always treated his gospel work. We see this when he talks in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It says, what's motivating him? What's driving him? He says, knowing the fear of the Lord we persuade others. 
concluding with massively large letters because he fears the Lord and knows he has to give an answer to the Lord for how he persuades the Galatians. He writes again, for the love of Christ controls us. Christ's love for him leading into his love for the Galatians. Therefore, big letters. And again, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. Why big letters? Because it's as if God himself were appealing through Paul. It's not just him with a private opinion he wants you to hold. But this is life and death for the Galatians. And it's God appealing to them. Be reconciled to God by faith alone in Christ alone and ignore the Judaizers with their false perversion of the gospel. It will destroy your soul. Hence, earnestness on Paul's part for all those reasons. God was appealing through Paul, but not in some robotic way, not sending down data for Paul to speak. And this is true of all good leaders. Those who speak, Scripture says, are to speak as if they spoke the oracles of God. And a preacher or a leader who is speaking in keeping with what's revealed in the Scriptures is not just sharing with you some interesting opinions. It's the only reason, and you know this, that it was possible for me to begin preaching here in this pulpit when I still looked like a teenager. And why was it that anyone would listen? Because I'm not speaking on my behalf. But we're very carefully focusing on every word of the Scriptures, and therefore it's God making an appeal, and hence the earnestness. If you talk to me in private, I'm not as animated, usually, as I am up here. But that's not accidental. It's because when we're talking in private, yes, I am speaking on behalf of God in many ways, but I'm also speaking on behalf of myself. But when I'm speaking here with a Bible open in a corporate gathering, I speak with an earnestness appropriate to God appealing to you in matters of life and death. And you see that in Paul. You see that in good leaders. And we have a freedom as good leaders to do this because although you know I'm so far from what I want to be, yet I can say the display case of my life is pretty clear. It's pretty clear. You see the good, you see the bad. When I appeal to you, when zealously with earnestness I appeal to you from the pulpit, it's not that I have ulterior motives that I want to hide and I'm appealing to you. I can appeal with earnestness because I have, by God's grace, some degree of a good conscience. And so therefore, I'm just declaring to you God's word. When I say I love you, I can't open my chest and prove that, but I do. We desire God's glory, and it's true. That is true for the elders in this church. Those who are doing teaching in this church by God's grace only have a genuine love for you, along with all the blemishes and imperfections. That is a sign of a good leader, an earnestness that is born out of this freedom of conscience. What we are inwardly, we are outwardly with you. Paul had an integrity of his inner person and his outer person, so much so that they could say of him, his letters are weighty and strong. <laughs> An earnestness, big letters, because he sincerely loved them. Now, there's a sense in which I'd like to continue longer considering marks of a good leader. 
to really fortify you so for the rest of your life, wherever you may end up, you'll always be alert to what good leaders are. But we're going to follow the wisdom of God who's put this text together. And most of this text is not focused on good leaders, but rather warning against bad leaders. And so it is now to bad leaders that we turn, bad leaders and their motives. Let's see this in verses 12 and 13 again. It is those who want what? What do they want? To make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised. And only why? In order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised. Why? That they may boast in your flesh. The point of these verses for Paul is to separate out fact from fiction. The only clear, undeniable fact in this situation, which is stated twice in this passage, is that the Judaizers wanted the Galatian Gentile converts to be circumcised. Now that, no one can dispute with. But then you have to ask the question, why? In Acts chapter 15, verse 1, we find what's on the front of the display case for the Judaizers. This is their explanation, outwardly, to the Galatians, for why they want them to be circumcised. Quote, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Outwardly, the Judaizers told the Galatians, we are interested what? What are we interested? What's driving us to come all this way to you? Your salvation. Because it's implied, because we love you. And he, they say as well here, according to the custom of Moses, and we love God and have a zeal for his law given through Moses, love for you, love for God, that's why we're here. So here, here's Paul saying, why am I doing this? Love for you, love for God. Here are the Judaizers. Why are they doing this? Love for you. Love for God. And Paul says, somebody's lying. The Judaizers. You and I have to exercise some care here because we are not Scripture, nor are we Paul. It is difficult at times for us to read someone else's motives, and generally speaking, don't try. Don't try, especially with believers. Yet, on the other hand, there are times where we have to exercise a godly discernment and using clear evidence, try to figure out if there's some disparity between what a leader is claiming and what their actual motives are. Three times in these two verses, Paul points to the real motives of the Judaizers. Verse 12, those who want, this is what they want, to make a good showing in the flesh. And then again in verse 12. In order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. And then in verse 13. That they may boast in your flesh. Now before we consider these motives themselves. 
let's just take a moment to consider the fact that there is a disconnect between whatever these motives are and what the Judaizers were presenting to the Galatians. This disconnect is what we call hypocrisy. Verse 12 actually makes this really clear because he says there, and only in order that, and the only is there from Paul, the only is there to say no matter what other motives they're claiming to have, they're really only doing this, getting you circumcised for this reason. It's not those reasons, not love for you and God. It's only that, and then he presents the motivations. Now, like I said, we have to be careful with this. We can't always discern the motives of others, but we do have to use a godly wisdom. We have to be shrewd as serpents. So when the televangelist on TV, evidently dressed in a very expensive suit, tells you outwardly that if you will sow a $100 seed into their ministry, you will reap a $1,000 harvest. Now, we Christians don't go around trying to judge everybody's motives, but we're not in kindergarten either. And you can put together some of those details and say, without even being able to see the heart, expensive lifestyle seems very nice, begging everyone to give money, claiming it's so you can be blessed with $1,000, rather generous of them, but you got to sow $100 into their ministry. Now, people will consider us judgmental for this, but hogwash. Take what he's saying, go wash some hogs. That's nonsensical. And that's what Paul's saying of the Judaizers as well. There's what they claim, but wipe that away and what's inside? Full of, in this case, greed. They want money. That's what they want is money. And everybody on the outside knows that, even unbelievers. But those within, it's hard to see. And so that's what Paul's saying of the Judaizers who are tricking the Galatians. He's saying they are hypocrites. Now, Jesus himself spent so much of his three-year ministry calling out hypocrisy in religious leaders. For him, it was the religious leaders of the Jewish people, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and so forth. In Matthew chapter 23, you may remember, Jesus gives a series of woes against leaders in the church, as we might say, religious leaders in his nation. He gives a series of woes, and he gives us two pictures to talk about hypocritical bad leaders, the picture of cups and the picture of tombs. Here's what he says, woe to you, big Letters, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside, what you really are, they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you! Scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful. They've been whitewashed, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly, by obscuring the display case, appear righteous to others, but within the actual painting in here, you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. 
Jesus came into the world to deliver us from our sins. And he also came to testify to the truth, including calling out when, especially among leaders, the external expressions, how people viewed the leaders was so far removed from what they actually were. The leaders didn't like that. They killed Jesus. And that happens. Good leaders are not appreciated for calling those things out, understandably. But it does remind us that although as Christians we want to take everyone at their word and we want to believe the best about people, please do, but especially when it comes to teachers and leaders, there is a very high standard set for a reason. Even some preachers and teachers who are heavy in emphasizing authenticity and being real, which is good, but there have been many who have emphasized authenticity living a double life. I can remember for myself, I have the distinct memory. I was mowing my yard in high school, and I had in my ear an audio sermon from a pastor who was becoming very popular in our circles. So I was listening, and I couldn't quite put my finger on it. It was a message about grace. It was a message about Jesus is enough. It was emphasizing our freedom as Christians. And you know, I agree with all of those things, but the way it was presented, even then, I felt like something was kind of off. So don't go charging and attacking teachers just because you feel something's kind of off. But what did happen later, as it turned out, turned away from at least sound living, abandoned his family, married somebody else out of the ministry. Even those who emphasize authenticity and realness, which he very much did, it doesn't mean there is an authenticity and a realness. There has to be a connection outside, inside. This is why Jesus said, you will recognize them by their fruits. Don't be taken in when you're seeing a teacher mainly by the externals, although we're tempted to do it. Is the person eloquent? Is the person confident? Let me just remind you, although we're often taken in by confidence, con men means confidence men. Don't be taken in by those who are confident about the lies that they're selling. Don't be taken in because they have nice hair and nice clothes. Don't be taken in because they have a good social media presence and social connections and education. You will know them by their fruits. Jesus wasn't talking about all those things. He was talking about what they do Monday through Saturday when they're not preaching. I remember again, several years ago, being at a conference, a very good conference for pastors, and one of the main speakers there taught, in fact, he taught on sanctification, the sanctification of believers, and he did a good job, and he used so much scripture, great theology, conservative Bible teacher, wonderful. And then later, in hindsight, it was found out that he was being unfaithful to his wife while he was preaching that. In fact, it came out even later that he was somewhat of a sexual predator even. How did he preach that on sanctification in the midst of living this double life? It can happen easier than you know. That's what Paul is pointing out in the Judaizers. Here's what they claim to be. Here's what you think they are. Here's what they are. And they're not the same thing. Now, the hard thing for us is just like in those examples, we don't always know when there's a double life going on. Paul knew, and he wrote scripture, he was right. 
But for us, we don't always know what someone's motives may be. Scripture acknowledges this. Paul said to Timothy, the sins of some people are conspicuous, just obvious, going before them to judgment. Pastor falls and now you know it. He said, but the sins of others appear later. A well-known preacher or evangelist seems to finish his course and then later you find out he was living a double life. That happens as well. Paul acknowledges that. But even that being the case, when you are looking to leaders or teachers in the church, use discernment. Be gracious, be charitable, but use discernment. Is there a difference between what they claim and what they are? Now, with that being spoken on hypocrisy, we are ready to consider what were the motives that the Judaizers were hiding from the Galatians. In both verses, the center is the Judaizers' desire to have the Galatians circumcised. Verse 12, who would force you to be circumcised. Verse 13, they desire to have you circumcised. And around those two pegs, Paul ties all their actual motives. These motives are really two sides of the same coin here. What did they want? Here's the positive, verse 12. Who want to make a good showing in the flesh, verse 13, that they may boast in your flesh. And then the negative side of it's the same desire. The negative side is in verse 12 again here. Only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. We've already spoken of this, but the Judaizers, here's what they wanted. They said, we want your good. No, 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 not you. We want God's glory. No, we love the law. No. Here's what they wanted. They wanted to be liked. The end. But specifically, they wanted to be liked by other Jews. It was not unlikely that in their day, there was a rising sense of Jewish nationalism, which came with a greater fear of any non-Jews. Those Gentiles, I mean Rome, the non-Jews, were evil and had taken over the Jewish people and enslaved them, basically, under their empire. So all non-Jews are unclean, they're bad. Christianity comes on the scene and is seen as an immense threat to the Jewish people because it says, because of the cross of Jesus Christ, Gentiles can now come and join us Jews on equal footing. We're all redeemed through Christ. To unconverted Jews, that was an immense threat. That you could bring uncircumcised Gentiles and they be on equal footing with God's special people, the elect nation of Israel, they would not have it. So if you were going to preach that gospel of the cross, reconciling us to God and us to each other, you'd be persecuted. That's what happened to Paul. But the Judaizers wanted to have their cake and eat it too. They wanted to preach some kind of gospel, but not be disliked by their Jewish kinsmen. So they said, oh, we tweak it this little way, and now our Jewish kinsmen won't persecute us. They'll love us. Instead of saying salvation by faith alone in Christ through the cross, we say salvation through faith in the cross, Christ in the cross, good. And also you have to become Jewish. <laughs> because you see what happens? Then when they go home to their Jewish neighbors, they say, what were you doing? We were out making Jews, more Jews. All these Gentiles, they love us and they want to become Jews. They all got circumcised. And their Jewish neighbor says, well, that's awesome. They say, well, what about Jesus? Oh, don't worry about that. Don't worry about that. Basically, they're Jewish. They're keeping the custom of Moses. They're keeping the law, the dietary restriction. And the Jewish unbelievers would rejoice. And therefore, in our text, 
the Judaizers would boast in the flesh of these Gentile converts, in their bodies, because they're circumcised. They boast in that. They would make a good showing, it says, in the flesh. It looks so good. And then their Jewish kinsmen aren't going to say, well, we're going to stone you. No, 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 no. We're glad about what you did. The Judaizers knew that, so they made that slight alteration to their gospel. But Paul has been saying this whole letter. When they made that slight change, they blew the gospel up. Now it's salvation by works. But that was their motive. That they may not be persecuted, that they may boast, that they may be excited and get other Jewish people excited. In fact, the cross, which they didn't want to be persecuted for the cross of Christ, the cross was an embarrassing message to any Jewish unbelievers. It was considered foolishness and a stumbling block, a stumbling block to the Jews, partly because it was a reminder of their great sin. That's what the Jewish leaders had told the apostles in Jerusalem. He says, here you filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Not a popular message. So the Judaizers downplayed the cross so that they could get praise. And if you need evidence to support Paul's claim, then you look at verse 13. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law. If from their heart they really loved God's law, that's why you've got to be circumcised, then wouldn't they keep God's law? Paul probably means this in a Romans chapter 2 sense. If you being a Jew boast in God's law, why do you break God's law? Why do you claim to love God's law and break? You say, don't steal, you steal. Because you can only hide your true inner self so well. You can only smudge it up so well. It will come through. That seems to be what Paul's saying. If you looked at their lives, public lives, their private lives, you will see where their inner self is sneaking through. They don't even keep the whole law. That's not really their interest. Their interest is being liked by getting you to keep the law, putting burdens upon your shoulders that they will not touch with their little finger. Those are the motives of the Judaizers. Now, you who know Christ, we who know Christ, we'll always encounter what seem to be novel teachings as Christians. A new book will come out. People will talk about it, be excited about it. Maybe it'll be true. Maybe it'll be false. When people get excited about a book, excited about a teacher, excited about a teaching, we're not trying to throw buckets of water on people's excitement. No, but we're just taking things realistically based on passages like this and saying, can we discern a marked difference between what the teacher is claiming and what the teacher actually wants. We need wisdom from God to know this. Is there a downplaying of the cross, a downplaying of sin, a downplaying of those themes of Scripture that are not self-serving, <laughs> that make us feel bad, and an upplaying of the themes of Scripture that even if you are an unbeliever, you'd love? Wealth, prosperity, satisfaction, then there may be a difference between motive and what someone, a teacher, actually is. Look for teachers your whole life, not just here, but look for teachers after God's own heart. 
they will not be the flashy ones. I'm not just saying that because you got me right now. I'm not a flashy one. I get it. But even besides me, more normal teachers, whatever, they're not going to be the flashy ones. They're not going to be the exciting ones most of the time. They're going to be the steady, faithful, proven over time people. They love their wife. They love their children. They love you. They sacrifice their time for you when no one else will know about it. It's not just about their social media presence. It's not just about numbers in the church. It is about loving and serving God's people. And you watch their life as much as you can to see, ah, that's not just what they're saying. That's reflecting who they actually are. May God give you the discernment wherever you end up in life for the rest of your life to seek out and sit under solidly and happily those kinds of teachers. And may God help all of us to have just enough wisdom to know when our teacher is not that way and to run. Amen.